Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, all right? And joining me, as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, it's the hilarious answer to who wears the pants. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. That tagline is so weirdly specific, I'm going to say it's uh, Wallace and Gromit in the wrong trousers. Oh, no, that would be that was a good guess. Uh, <laughs> did they call that the wrong pants in America? Or does trousers, like, just translate, it just seems antiquated? I think they went with trousers it wasn't like with the curse of the wear rabbit where they replaced every instance of the word marrow with melon mm. because they didn't know what marrows are over here mm, it's fucking bullshit <laughs> no that's uh, the tagline from adam's rib the uh, oh. the 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 comedy the battle of the sexes comedy for the ages that's a great movie mm, it is a great movie um, we have not um, spoken for fucking ages ed uh, i mean obviously <laughs> we have seen each other in this time um, but we haven't really recorded an episode in like three weeks. We've had like a guest on and we've had a solo episode from me. I just feel like I don't know you anymore. You're like a stranger to me. I've been thinking of this as our speaker box love below kind of outcast <laughs> period. This uh, this episode is certainly going to be our idle wild. Uh, it's going to come together and no one's ever going to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Ever, didn't, uh, was it outcast, uh, the idle wild? Was there was like a tie-in film that was really, really bad. Yeah, well, I don't, yeah, it it came out in like 2006, I want to say, and like it was something that certainly I was very excited about because obviously they were coming off of this like huge album and it seemed to fit them so well, like almost too well. It's like, oh, it's like a film where Andre 3000 plays a guy who's like a showman and kind of like the front man and like Big Boy's the guy who does all the deals. And it's like, yeah, that's maybe a bit on the nose for their established persona. But <laughs> uh, uh, and yeah, and then like it did nothing. Like it was really weird just how much of a non-factor that movie was. Which is a shame because then, unless rumours of their return are true, then that's kind of like the last outing for like one of the the great bands of the the nineties and early two thousands. Mm, yeah, I think maybe naming the film and album after a kind of middling Scottish indie band might have been the problem because <laughs> um, maybe people turned up thinking it was that, and they were like, "Oh, what's this shit?" Um, but just a quick question: If we're Outcast, who is Big Boy and who is Andre Three Thousand? Uh, I think you're Andre. Oh, Jesus Cause, Christ! Because I do all of because I do all the editing. I do oh. the yeoman's work, much as Big Boy did with the production side. Mm, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, what have we what have we been up to? I know that uh, you have been uh, kind of gallivanting around uh, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, most uh, kind of jealous, kind of jealousy inducing for me. You've been to see Hamilton, haven't you, Ed? I have. I went to see. That was the entire purpose for the the trip. Really, I booked. A ticket to see Hamilton in January, uh, because I just thought I want. I'm gonna. I'm gonna want to try and have a holiday this year that isn't just going back to England. Because mm. as much as, as great as it is to come back to England and to see people and hang out with people, it doesn't quite feel as much of a holiday, really. Because you're going back to see people and to. And it's nice to go to somewhere that you either haven't been or that you haven't been in a while. And I hadn't been to New York in 13 years, mm. so. Uh, so I said, you know, I, I really want to see Hamilton on stage. 
October would be probably a decent time work-wise I'm going to go. So the, my whole trip, basically, what started with buying a, tri- a ticket for Hamilton and then I built the rest of it around it. And, like, you know, we've done a whole episode on Hamilton. Um, you and I have uh, discussed uh, off-mic, ad nausea, the kind of intricacies of Hamilton. Um, we, we both listened to the um, cast recording, uh, kind of ad nauseum. So it, was it a middling experience, just average? Yeah, it was just very middle-of-the-road theatre, you know. It's like everyone mm. says it's great because it's really expensive and they want to trick their friends into buying tickets for it. <laughs> It's a big Ponzi scheme. No, it was great. It was it was fantastic. Um, obviously, it's there's been some cast turnover this time, so it was Javier Munez playing uh, playing Hamilton, uh, who was great. I think for anyone who's familiar with the cast recording, he's a little less manic than Lin Manuel Miranda. Um, like he doesn't have quite as much of the sparky energy, so he's not as convincing as like a young Hamilton because he just he just has a, a kind of a, a greater presence and he seems older. But when he plays older Hamilton towards the end of the play and particularly during uh during the world the world was wide enough uh at the very end when he has that thing where he's he's detailing Hamilton's final thoughts mm-hmm. um there's a kind of a weight to it and a graveness to it that's really I found very very affecting and uh, uh Brandon Victor Dixon who's the new Aaron Burr is is fantastic he's that he's, he's a lot more impish than Leslie Odom Jr. is on the record. Uh, uh, so there's a nice difference between hearing on, on the cast recording. It's like Hamilton is a little more kind of more serious and intense and Burr is a little more lighthearted. So they've they've kind of switched the dynamic up a little bit in a way that I found really fascinating. And a lot of the original cast is still in it, like Christopher Jackson, who plays George Washington's in it. And I was really I was really glad that he was still in it. I got to see him perform because he has my favourite line in the play, which is when he quotes from the Bible uh, about uh, every man will sit under his own vine and fig tree, which I think is a, like the way he sings it. It's, it's really kind of beautiful and moving. Um yeah, uh, it was it was fantastic. The the dramaturgy of it all, the like the the way the set moves around to do certain things, like to make it seem like time is going backwards or to uh, recreate battles, is incredibly innovative and exciting. Uh, and it it feels for a stage play, it feels weirdly kind of cinematic. Mm, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going to see it next August. I think I've got tickets. Um, and I've got high hopes for it. I have seen a lot of theatre in my time. I have seen um, Michael Greco, the actor who played Beppe DeMarco, playing Hamlet in Norwich. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's going to take quite a lot to top that. (laughs) But, you know, my fingers are crossed. Uh, What else did you see while you were there? Uh, On the Saturday when I was there... No, sorry, the Friday. The Saturday I saw Hamilton. On the Friday, I took in uh, the Broadway production of... Oh, Hello, which is the stage show written by and starring Nick Kroll and John Mulaney as their characters of George St. Eaglin and Gil Faison, who are a pair of Alan Alder-obsessed old men, one of whom believes himself to be a great writer, even though he's never had anything published, one of whom believes himself to be a great actor, despite he's almost never on stage. Mm. Uh, And it was possibly the funniest hour and a half of theatre I've ever seen, because the conceit of it all is like they come out and they they say okay we've written this play and we're going to perform it and it's both incredibly broad <laughs> like there's a bit where and very specific at the same time like there's a bit where Mulaney's character George says and the key to Broadway of course is yelling and he's talking <laughs> about how yelling is the defining part of all 
American theater and then uh Kroll comes on carrying a chair in his arms and he just screams my chair baby it's dead <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then as he's walking away Mulaney says and that was the scene from Ionesco's chairs <laughs> which is like a, a super obscure reference to a surrealist play mm. uh and that's kind of the balance all the way through is it's very very silly and broad and weird but also like there's a really super specific um references to just like the nature of new york like at one point they're talking about the 90s and says like giuliani cleared up all the porn from times square so now you have to go two blocks over to find it and things like that uh and it's it's really it's just a really funny weird hour of uh, hour and a half of of theater which in the middle breaks so they can do an episode of their prank show too much tuna Mm. which uh, for anyone who's not seen it, uh, they used to do on Kroll's show, on Nick Kroll's sketch show, where they would invite people to a table, talk to them, and then bring out a tuna sandwich that is overloaded with tuna. And that was their prank, was that <laughs> they gave someone a sandwich that has too much tuna on it. And uh, at the Broadway run, they have guests who come out every night, they're real famous people, and they have like a little improv conversation. And the night I was there, it was uh, Cara Delevingne, Suicide oh, wow. Squad's own... Cara Delevingne, who was super funny and charming and completely unlike I've ever seen her on screen. So, mm. uh, and also they said it was technically her Broadway debut. So I feel I got to see something very special that night. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, that she should be so um, affable in person given that I just assumed she was a special effect in uh, in Suicide Squad because <laughs> uh, it, was, it was so kind of uh, awful to watch her on screen. I kind of was convinced it wasn't real. Uh, she did do a dumb dance on stage at one point, so she's got that going for her. Oh, well, yeah, that is good. That is good. Like Ed said, we haven't spoken in ages, um, and there's been a lot of news uh, that's been happening since then. We won't talk about it all because we'll be here all night. But one of the most exciting things that's happened actually happened two or three days ago, and that is that they have confirmed that Donald Glover is playing young Lando Calrissian in the Han Solo young Han Solo movie directed by Lord and Miller, uh, which is a film that we're kind of hugely excited about, but it just got a little more exciting, didn't it, Ed? It did, although I've found with these sort of things, like this casting announcement, there was also a few weeks ago, like casting announcements for uh, for for Black Panther, which were all very exciting, like they're adding, adding new people to that, and the, the whole cast for that film is like stacked with really great actors. Every time there's an, an announcement that someone joins like a big franchise movie, I have two thoughts simultaneously one is like yay good for them like and that sounds really exciting and the other one is i hope that's good because otherwise it's like a f- we're missing a f- good film they could make or mm. like several good films if it's like a big franchise thing and you think this is going to consume several years of their life over over the time it's less so with actors than with like directors because directors can get attached to a big budget film and that can take up like years of their career that they could have been doing something else um and actors, it's less so. It's like a couple of months' work and then the pressed stuff and then they can go and do whatever they want. But with that one, it is very exciting because Donald Glover is obviously a hugely talented and exciting and charismatic presence. He was like hilarious on Community. He's really great on Atlanta, the show he created and stars in and writes. Uh, he was really fun in The Martian last year. You know, he's he's someone whose career is definitely on the rise and ascending in like a major way. So to see him get such a high-profile role and one that seems to gel with his his skill set so well, uh, it is very exciting. Mm, 
Yeah, and someone commented on Twitter, I can't remember who it was, but it was like, now we are one step closer to having all of the cast of Magic Mike XXL in a Star Wars movie, <laughs> which, you know, is something to work towards, I feel. Um, yeah. I have uh, kind of certain reservations about this, uh, and I'll tell you for why. There is, I love Star Wars, uh, as we've been kind of through in exhaustive detail on this show, but and there's never been a better time to be a Star Wars fan. There's... Mm. Um, you know, obviously it was bought by Disney, which meant, you know, oh my God, we're going to get like lots and lots of Star Wars stuff, which was a worry. And then all of it, you know, they put capable people in charge. Um, and, you know, we're getting uh, kind of good TV shows. We're getting um, good kind of films, interesting directors, picked to do things. Lord and Miller doing a, a kind of young Han Solo movie is, a, is an awesome proposition. If you've told me that three or four years ago, I'd have been absolutely um, overjoyed. But my issue is... And this is something I've, I've kind of started to feel for a while now, is that we're kind of not getting anything new. Mm. Um, we are kind of wallowing in golden era Star Wars, and there's only so much life that's going to have. Uh, mm. We're just seeing what we've already seen in more detail. We're filling in the blanks between. Uh, the bits of story that we know, um, and even with the new movies, the you know uh, episode seven, eight, and nine, we are seeing remixed versions of the old films, I guess. And I, you know, I loved the Force Awakens, but there wasn't really a whole lot new in it. And there were mm-hmm. some cool characters, but they're ultimately still attached to the old saga. And like, you know, I like the idea of all these spin-off movies. I like the idea of the standalone movies, but for the love of God, just give us. A planet we've never heard of with people who aren't related to the Skywalkers who <laughs> who aren't part of any factions we've heard of and just say, well, here's a let's take a chance on it, like a story that's kind of that can just stand on its own and be a thing. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely agree with you on that. That was the thing that eventually drove me away from like the expanded universe stuff when I used to read those. Because mm. in the early days, you would have things like the the Thrawn trilogy, where it's like, oh, it's direct continuation of the stories, and a lot of the books obviously would focus on the Skywalker family. But then you would also get things like the X-Wing books, which were about... uh, Sorry, the Rogue Squadron books, which were about like where Jantilly's going off and doing his own thing and leading Rogue Squadron through adventures that didn't really tie in too much into the main thing. Uh, Or you'd get things like the Tales from Jabba's Palace, Tales from Mos Eisley Cantina, little anthology things where you got stories that took took place in places that you knew, but weren't uh, weren't necessarily like involving the characters you knew. It was showing you something new, taking you behind the scenes, and it kind of feels like that was something you could do with books because the budget for books are they're unlimited essentially like you can mm. you can say okay it's going to be about this character no one ever knows and we're going to put it out and it doesn't matter because we're going to put out like five story books about luke in the next three months because we just shit all this stuff out whereas with a movie it's like so much money is involved that you can't take the risks of doing kind of an offbeat weird story and it's the same problem that marvel have is like comics is a uh, comics are such a big medium where you can tell all kinds of stories you can tell kind of little personal stories you can tell big stories about the world ending or you can just do like you know a little detective story it's like batman is out one night just kind of chasing after muggers or something and you can't do that in films because all these films cost like 120 million dollars it has to be kind of a big thing 
Uh, and, and that's kind of the problem with all of this kind of blockbuster filmmaking is that the sheer amount of money it involves means that they become less risky over time. Unless mm. it's like, like I, I, like I hope episode eight will take some risks just because it's guaranteed to be really successful. But everything apart from that one, it kind of feels like they're not taking as many risks as they could have uh, if they were working with less money. Mm. And I mean, like, like I said, when Disney bought Lucasfilm, they kind of put like people in charge of like, like kind of like a story group, I guess, like Pixar has and kind of make sure that everything's kind of unified and, and across the comics and the books. So we don't get a kind of expanded universe, uh, Bib Fortuna's spider brains type, uh, mm-hmm. fiasco going on. But, you know, when that happened, it was, oh, cool, that's amazing. Oh, we've got Han Solo comic. Oh, we've got a Darth Vader comic. We've got Chewbacca comic. We've got comics for everyone who we already know. Um, and, yeah, I'd just, I'd just love to kind of, you know, get a slice of, of something Star Wars-y that's just just not related to the to the current story. I mean, you watch, they'll do it, and it'll be terrible, and I'll be like, ah, bring back Lobot. Like origin movie or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? I did put on Twitter that, you know, with, with Donald Glover coming on as Lando, surely Jim Rash should come in as Lobot. <laughs> that, would, that would be the perfect casting, right? Yeah. Or uh, bring uh, Danny Pudi on as the guy that Lobot replaced. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, like, and every time Lobot appears, he's wearing a completely different outfit. Like a Halloween <laughs> outfit. That'd be amazing. But yeah, anyway, that's... So I'm excited for that, but... In a broader sense, I have have uh, deep reservations, um, but you know I hope that'll change. Something I don't have reservations about uh, is segways, um, and I want to talk about <laughs> I want to talk about Jessica Jones because mm. um, you know the amazing news this week, which is uh, I think like massive. Um, I haven't seen enough people talking about it. Is that they have announced that uh, every episode of the second season of Marvel's wonderful Jessica Jones will be directed by female directors. And that's pretty fucking amazing. That is great. Uh, although it should be pointed out, a lot of people have said this on Twitter, that Ava DuVernay did that with her TV series Queen Sugar. Right. So this, this is not, they're not the first show to commit to it, but they are a very high profile show. Like Queen Sugar is a show that is, uh, I haven't seen, but a lot of people say is is really great, and that it's getting a lot of buzz on Twitter and things like that. So, but it was something that went in without the big franchise expectations or something like Jessica Jones, mm-hmm. which is coming off of a hugely successful first series, and you know Luke Cage has just come out, and everyone's going crazy about that. So, for Marvel to commit, and and the showrunners obviously to commit to saying we are going to give. 13 episodes of television every single one of them is going to be directed by a woman every single one of them is probably going to be watched by millions of people that is a huge deal that is a big step forward for an industry that is very very bad on having women and you know uh, people of color minorities involved in directing they don't give people the chance and you would hope that this will allow like up-and-coming directors the chance to or even just like established directors who can always use the work to kind of come up and have that on their cv and then move on to do other things because like i think it was lexi alexander said on twitter it's like every director at some point has never directed anything and they just need that shot and Mm. women don't get as many of those shots as men do so something like this where they're going to say yeah these are all going to be directed by women is uh, hugely encouraging Mm. and it it kind of goes 
you know, a massive way to kind of getting rid of that whole bullshit kind of that gets wheeled out by the the assholes that, you know, women can't do uh, action, women can't do fantasy, they can't do mm. kind of big budget. Well, well no one knows because no one's fucking tried it. So, like, you know, why? And of course they can because that's ridiculous. It's mm. just all about opportunity. So, okay, let's have some affirmative action on it. And there you go. Go on, yeah. do your best, and then we'll see. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's great. It's it's is a uh, kick in the teeth for anyone who has ever made that argument, uh, mm. which I think uh, needs to happen. And something like this is a very is a very major way of kicking in some teeth. Mm. I think Netflix and Marvel could uh, could probably start a trend here. Now, bear with me, Ed right, okay? So you've got Jessica Jones, all the directors female, okay? Luke Cage, all the directors black, mm. right? Are you with me? Daredevil, mm. all the directors blind. <laughs> how about that yeah just get uh who was it who shot apocalypse now when he was going half blind get him in <laughs> yeah it'll sound amazing right <laughs> <laughs> just yeah i mean i think that's you know the only way forward speaking of directors deadpool 2 has lost theirs now it's very surprising given um that against and again i will admit it here against my best judgment uh deadpool turned out to be a huge hit making a, a massive stinking pile of money, um, which is just the shot in the arm that comic book movies need. And just yesterday, or day before yesterday, um, the f- uh, film's director, the first film's director, who was on board uh, for the second film, has dropped out over creative dis- differences, which I believe involve Kyle Chandler. Um, can you <laughs> shed any light on this, Ed? Why Kyle Chandler? Because he is the director's choice to play the baddie, and Ryan Reynolds ah. says, I do not want that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, to play yeah. A, a, ba- a baddie called Cable, who mm. uh, I, I can't help but laugh at because I just think of Larry the Cable Guy, who <laughs> who I would never laugh at, let's be clear. But, I mean, I think that he'd make a really good villain. Yeah, do you think that's who Ryan Reynolds wants? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, him. And then you could just, Ryan Reynolds could just get him on stage and just batter him for his, uh, um, you know, his kind of uh, disarming but, like, horrifyingly right-wing persona. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that this has happened because obviously you think, oh, wow, these guys have made this hugely successful film together. Surely they'd be able to kind of work something out. But at the same time, you kind of wonder how much Tim Miller was actually responsible for Deadpool's success because that's not an especially distinctively directed movie. Like it's more down to the script and the performance than him, and obviously he was a big part of shaping the performance. But it's it's not like um, I don't know when Brian Singer left the X Men franchise, where you can think, oh, it's lost its it's lost its voice. Mm. It it doesn't feel like that. It definitely feels like oh, a workman is no longer directing this. A different workman will probably come in, someone who won't mind Larry the Cable Guy playing Cable, and will mm. just kind of go along with it because. Uh, but, you know, my understanding is that Ryan Reynolds has kind of been one of the key factors driving that film for the, the decade or so that it was in development before it actually happened. Mm. Yeah. Um, I wasn't listening to anything you just said there, Ed, mm-hmm. because I've been thinking of an amazing pun. Okay. <laughs> right. So let's just say that Kyle Chandler does sign on, right, mm-hmm. for Deadpool 2, and then halfway through production leaves... Right, and he's playing a character called Cable, mm-hmm. and they could call it Deadpool Two: The Ballad of Cable's Rogue. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Yeah, I think they should go with that. I think that it would definitely get the kind of lesser-known Peckinpah fans in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Carl Chandler, uh, mm. did you read on The Ringer this week there was an amazing, uh, amazing article imagining what the five years, the next five seasons of, of, of Friday Night Lights would be? No, no. Fill us uh, in. You, you should. It's basically, it imagines, A, that like bloodline and nashville the shows that carl chandler and uh, connie Britton went on to take place within the same continuity as fn <laughs> as, as friday night lights but also uh it involves tim riggins eventually becoming president of the usa because he's too hot not to be <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah there's a repeated refrain in it which is it's like he gets arrested for drunk driving and the cop and then it says but the cop made the fatal error of looking into Riggins' eyes. And then there's like a gif of Taylor Kitsch. And then it says, you're too hot to arrest. In fact, you should be the cop. And then like, that's, that's how his story progresses is everyone eventually gives him their job. So he, and it's, it's amazing. It's really, really funny. Uh, it's on the ringer and it's called like Friday night live, the post TV years, Friday mm. night lights, not Friday night live. That's no. not a show. Um, but it's like the guy who had the paperclip and he said would you swap me this paperclip for like a stapler and then he got the stapler and then he just traded up so like he became someone who's pulled over for speeding and then became president yeah um, i wonder if matt Sar- how matt saracen's art is going is that covered there are some mentions of him being in a terrible art show yeah, he's mentioned like three times and each time is like and he's doing art or something oh and the other big part of it is that cruise victorious are the biggest band in the world Mm, and, well, rightly so. Uh, although they've migrated from Christian rock to kind of a roots reggae sound, mm. and um, and uh, Landry gets arrested for the murder they did in season two <laughs> because he recorded a whole concept album about the fact he killed someone and no one ever talked about it. Yeah, his dad's kind of brushed under the carpet. It was fun. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, check that out. It's really great. That's mm. my recommendation for this week. An early recommendation. Check out that article by mm, Sam Donsky on the Ringer. That link will be in the show notes, everybody. Yep. Um, the last bit of news I've got, which is a bit of a weird bit of news, but I like that because last week, uh, well, all of last week, I spent uh, fucking hours laboring over an episode of this show, which is done without Ed. And I rely on, I realized whilst doing that just how much I like Ed talking because I don't have to. <laughs> um, and episode yeah, was I mean, great, by the way. If, if oh. people haven't heard it, do check it out. It was really, really good. Yeah, but I mean, I'm I'm agreeing. Obviously, it is a masterpiece. But like, <laughs> there was a lot of writing I had to do for it, and uh, that was bullshit. But anyway, the whole point I'm bringing this up is that um, it was about a film that never happened. It was about Nick Cave's script for Gladiator Two, which was never mm. filmed. Um, I found out this week, uh, and you know, it's out there, and I, it kind of passed me by until earlier today. That uh, it came out this week that Bruce Springsteen had written a power ballad for the Harry Potter films that was rejected. Mm. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. Yeah, because like I know, obviously, like Daniel Radcliffe, I assume was like a huge fan of his because he was a fan of like every every artist. It seemed from that time he was on like uh, when he was on Jonathan Ross's show and talked about how much he loved Morrissey and all these the various hip bands. Uh, and one of is the Morrissey bands, the hippest band you can think of? He was pretty no. hip in two thousand four. He was on a comeback swing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't just uh, like. 30-year-old Latino men who were into him anymore. Everyone was back on the Morrissey train in 2004. Mm. Um, but, like, yeah, I imagine he was probably the one who would have approached him or would kind of push for him because I can't understand who else would look at that and say, English wizards, what we need 
is the voice of blue collar America. Mm, <laughs> That's really yeah. what we need to kind of soundtrack all of this kind of like private school wizardry nonsense. Mm, it, it said it came out in the, in the article I read, it came out that, um, and I'm not sure whether this has been in, you know, the, the Springsteen memoir that's out at the minute. Mm. Um, I don't know if it's kind of covered off in that, but uh, he read the books to his son, mm-hmm. loved, loved him so much. He wrote a song for his son. Wow. And then when they were making the films, he submitted it to Warner Brothers and said, I've got this a little song for you here. And apparently J.K. Rowling had, had got it in the, like she had a very, very strict contract. And if you remember, but the, which, which kind of the, the stipulations that in place for when she sold the rights to Warner Brothers, I think it's Warner Brothers, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that, you know, they had to shoot it in England and have you know, British actors and all that kind of caper. But it, one of the main things was like absolutely no... Um, pre-existing music oh okay so uh yeah that and that's why it was rejected which is kind of weird i mean that's something i didn't expect to read when when looking at this week's film news that is a that's pretty odd and like the, the song's never been heard and it's called i'll stand by you always which sounds like fucking leanne rhyme should be singing it or something <laughs> yeah it's weird that of the like music that did end up went in it they ended up going for jarvis cocker and members of radiohead mm. which isn't again isn't exactly what i think of when i think of magic but yeah it's kind of i guess it's a little closer also it's very weird if you go to universal studios here in florida and you go to the harry potter world there is a bit where like cast members of the at the park sing some of the songs from that from the the fourth movie some of the jarvis cocker songs and i found that very strange the last time i was there it's like you travel across the world and you still can't quite get away from sheffield Mm. it'll still it'll still come through in some some fashion you'll be holding some steel or you'll be in a park and you'll hear some words from sheffield's favorite son yeah 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 you didn't yeah and they probably have henderson's relish in the canteens <laughs> there most that's likely. all butterbeer is butterbeer is just hendo's relish with a bit of water in oh, imagine that that'd be a terrible drink i mean i love hendo's but fuck me that'd be an awful idea um should we get into like the actual show this weekend because, yeah let's uh, not talk about yeah. relish Let's not anyway. dwell on that for too long. Um, we're going to talk about something. Uh, it was an idea we, we had a few weeks ago, which is uh, has been set our minds racing. We're talking about uh, terrible films by great directors, and you know that everyone's got a stinker on their CV, pretty much, or have they? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, there's quite a lot of reasons why you know directors make bad films, as I think uh, Joel Schumacher said once, and he's he should know. He's made a few of them. Uh, he said no one ever sets out to make a bad film. Um, but you know, people invariably do. And I remember reading in in Sidney Lumet's great book about how to make films, making movies. Um, he kind of lists the reasons he's made every film and the only one he said he made for money. He never states which one it is. Um, but he says that, you know, he gives it everything every time, but you know, they can't all be winners, Ed. Um, but to start off, do you want to talk about, um, perhaps some of the directors we would consider great and some of their obvious stinkers, and maybe talk about why. Well, yeah, the the thing that inspired this decision was, this this episode kind of topic was, uh, there was a hurricane in Florida recently, and I was stuck inside my house for most of the day, because even though I was quite far away from the worst of it, I didn't lose power or anything, it was all more or less fine. It, we did get a lot of really heavy rain over this way, so I was I couldn't really leave the house at all. So I decided to watch some films that I had on my DVR, and the one I decided to go for 
against all kind of uh, advice was Francis Ford Coppola's film Finian's Rainbow, mm. which was one of his first films. It was his first studio film. I think it was after he'd done a few films for Roger Corman. Uh, and it's a musical starring a aging Fred Astaire, who's not quite as nimble on his feet as he was in the olden days, uh, about two Irish people who traveled to kind of middle of nowhere America to bury gold in order to that it will accrue. And they're pursued by a leprechaun mm-hmm. who's maybe one of the most grating characters has ever been on TV. Uh, on well he was on my tv but in cinema he's one of the most grating characters in the history of cinema and part of the plot and this is a this is a play from the or musical from the 40s so this made slightly more sense in 1948 than in 1968 part of the plot involves a corrupt senator discovering the plight of african-americans by being cursed to turn into a black man by the leprechaun um and the actor who plays it, I think is Fred Gwynn, I mm. believe, uh, performed much of the second half of the film in blackface. <laughs> and the songs are bad. The songs are terrible. There's no life to it. So even like, even though it's directed by a, a great director who was only four years away from directing The Godfather, um, it's just like really, really bad. And you get the sense that it's made by someone who was really constrained and, you know, was kind of overwhelmed by his first big budget experience. Uh, and like, and Coppola is kind of an interesting one in that he is just someone who has a number of like really bad films on his CV and they all, you can all see them being bad for very different reasons. But that was the one that kind of really struck out, stuck out for me as being a case of like a young man being really in over his head. Mm. It uh, Pidion's Rainbow was, uh, this is a, a fact for you here, when I started my film studies degree, mm-hmm. uh, all the way back in 1999, um, the first three weeks of the course, the first film we saw was Tokyo Story. Mm. <laughs> um, the second film we saw the following week was Tokyo Story, mm-hmm. because, uh, and this is genuine, our course leaders wanted us to get into the habit of watching films twice. Because that is something that would have never occurred to me before doing a film studies <laughs> degree. Um, the third film was Finney and Rainbow. But for reasons I don't know, because I didn't go to that lecture. Because I was like, what's this <laughs> shit? I don't want to watch that. Um, but from what I, limited I do know about Finney and Rainbow is that it was uh, the only film in which Fred Astaire appears where he uh, his, his feet and his upper body are separated in two separate shots. That is correct. Yeah, I did notice that. Because I know that he that was something he stipulated for his whole career is his whenever he danced he had to be full body so people could see the work that he was doing mm. um and it surprises me that Finian's uh, rainbow could be anywhere near as bad as jack which is mm. regarded by many people as francis ford coppola's a bet noir which is french for worst film <laughs> um <laughs> i'm pretty sure um and so have you seen both of those i've not seen uh he wanted to call it Finian's rainbow but that's Cintrinian's. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, is that worse than Finian Rainbow? Jack is way worse. I couldn't finish Jack, and I saw that in the cinema when I was ten. Uh, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> my, my forced my mum to take me to go and watch it, and then forced her to take you out again. Yeah, it's like an hour in. It's like no, let's stop. This is weird and horrible. Mm. Uh, and then we went into some other film because we weren't law-abiding people. We just snuck into a different movie. Um, mm. I want to say it was a revival screaming. No. It wasn't a revival screening, screening of Bambi. That's what I, I made my dad take me into when we walked out of Stargate. But it was... You walked out of Stargate, you monster. 
Eight-year-old me was very discerning. Yeah, you're like, what's all this Egypt shit? This is really strange. <laughs> um, this doesn't. But, this is all conspiracy nonsense. This is David David Ike shit. Yeah. I want to watch a deer die. It's interesting that like this is the first example we can think of Francis Ford Coppola because it covers off um, kind of three separate reasons as to why a great director might make a bad film. One is that um, they are in the early stages of their career. Uh, history is littered with film, you know, filmmakers who. Um, got their start in quite unusual places, and then ended up perhaps going on to do something else. You mentioned, uh, you know, Coppola worked for Corman. Like, a lot of people worked for Corman. A lot of people made some quite trashy films for for Roger Corman, mm. um, and then went on to do other things. James Cameron is a is a like an example of someone who started who made their first film under the exploitation banner. He made Piranha Two, um, the Spawning, I believe, is the the subtitle to that. Um, and although he has made bad films, uh, I don't think any of them has got to quite that level. Um, but then obviously he's gone through something else. The other reason that a, a, a filmmaker might make a bad film is compromise. They might have interference from the studio or they might be doing one for the money, as it were. Um, a good example I can think of that is is uh, June by David Lynch. That was a, a heavily compromised studio picture from a bright, exciting director who has, who has got a body of work which is pretty solid. It's not flawless, but it's pretty solid outside of Dune. And it was just a wrong-headed match from the start. Yeah, uh, Dune is an especially bad one because it, it was clear that he wanted to take that next step, you know, having done been nominated for an Oscar for The Elephant Man and, and kind of broken through into a mainstream way that he, he clearly found something interesting in the script and then when he actually made that kind of step up in scale and and moving from something kind of very modest where he was shielded by Mel Brooks as a producer who obviously was someone who very who wanted him to do his own thing someone who had seen a razor head and said I want this guy to do whatever the hell he wants with his movie to then mm. working with like someone like Dino De Laurentiis who is someone who produced a lot of really great movies but also seemed to have been quite overbearing and someone who was very willing to interfere with something if he didn't think that it was going well and yeah that's something that's all over dune as a case of a lot of competing voices struggling to kind of wrestle a very difficult book into something even remotely filmable uh, and no one really coming out of it well no no apart from alejandro jodorowsky <laughs> who didn't even make the film but yeah it's uh the other the third reason that um Vinian Drove is, inter- is interesting in terms of uh, great filmmakers doing bad films is if you make enough films if you are prolific enough if your career is long enough you're gonna have the odd blot on the copybook as it mm. were um and yeah someone's someone being like very prolific uh, a great example I can think of is Woody Allen um, yeah he's on my who, list who has made more good films than most directors ever will um, but has also probably, got, I mean, he's probably got a solid five to ten stinkers. Yeah, I I went for a period about two or three years ago where I decided I was going to watch all of the movies of his that I hadn't seen. Mm. And unfortunately, a lot of them were concentrated in the early 2000s, Oof. which was his worst period by some measure. Obviously, like the 70s. He made a bunch of really great films, but he wasn't making a film a year. He was making a film like every couple of years, and and that pace seemed to suit him well. And then in the eighties, when he started doing a film a year, he had like this amazing run where you mm. go from like Stardust Memories through to Crimes and Misdemeanors, and there's not really a bad film in that. There's some like a Midsummer Night's Sex comedy which aren't great, but they're still pretty fun. 
Mm. Uh, and then the 90s was was pretty solid as well. And then like you get to the 2000s and you start with Small Time Crooks, which is okay. Not bad, but it kind of feels a little laboured. And it loses a lot when it goes from the early part where it's like a Lady Killers style ealing farce of these people trying to rob a bank but accidentally creating a hugely successful cookie in business mm. uh, uh to the like the second half where it's like um i think pierce brosnan trying to pick off or hugh grant trying to pick off um tracy allman and like they're, they're rich and it all becomes really boring very much like roseanne in a way as soon as the characters become rich it becomes really uninteresting uh and then like from there on it's like what curse the jade scorpion hollywood ending anything else which isn't that isn't as bad as some people say but it's still not it's still not amazing um yeah scoop cassandra's dreaming um it's just a long list of really really bad films with the odd kind of interesting idea like like a match point where it's like oh this is interesting he's kind of improved a little bit here um yeah he's his whole uh this whole century hasn't been kind to woody allen hmm yeah yeah it's it's weird that like i did a kind of cursory google search uh on earlier which was uh kind of bad films by great directors and it wasn't particularly helpful but uh, there was a lot of kind of listicles and scoop was woody allen's worst film consistently i think maybe one website had gone for celebrity um but a good deal of them picked scoop celebrity is my least favorite of his films I really, really don't think that one's any good. It doesn't really work. Kenneth Branagh's Woody impression is like if I was doing a film impersonating Woody Allen. Uh, it's like it's just like lots of tit vocal ticks without really saying words, and it's really annoying. Um, but like, it's my least favorite. But I think that at least it's bad because he's trying something different. Mm. Like he's trying to do like an um, a La Dolce Vita kind of thing he's he's in his Fellini mode and so it's it's something that he's trying and it not working as opposed to a lot of stuff in the 2000s where he's not trying <laughs> he's just making a film because he makes films and he's not necessarily doing it because he has a good idea mm, yeah in terms of uh compromise um and in maybe talking about doing something for the studio um rather than your own kind of pursuing your own personal vision uh, something that jumps out kind of immediately to me when we when I kind of sat down to start thinking about doing this is the Brothers Grimm, the mm. Terry Gilliam film, for, which is I mean if you told if you showed it to someone who didn't know anything about the film, um, but were familiar with Terry Gilliam's work and then said that was a Terry Gilliam film, they would say that was a Terry Gilliam film, mm. and you know there's nothing in there from him, and he's someone whose films very often misfire and very often don't work, but they are kind of indelibly his, and and similar to Jabberwocky, which isn't particularly great, but you know it's fucking Terry Gilliam. You can tell just by looking at a single frame of that film that that's him. But the Brothers Grimm just feels like a like kind of poorly conceived Van Helsing kind of knockoff. Yeah, and it kind of feels it feels a weirdly ahead of the curve of things like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter mm. or Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, where mm. there was that whole string of like, let's take things that are in the public domain and make them kind of steampunk monster movies, and they it's it's really bad, but it is it's mainly bland. Mm. It does really yeah. feel like they've sucked all of the distinctive Gilliamness out of it and I think part of that is that it was his first film to really heavily use CGI mm. and 
he still hasn't got a handle on that. Like if you look at something like the Imaginarian or Doctor Parnassus, like the CGI in that is awful. But at least it's kind of garish and fake looking by design. Mm. Whereas that is like here's some really substandard Hollywood CGI monsters menacing Heath Ledger. You know, it's not exactly the most interesting thing. Mm, and we talked about it a few weeks ago on the Pan's Labyrinth episode, but Mimic is a mm. uh, is, is a fairly kind of obvious example. Of, that's by quite a long shot uh, Del Toro's worst film. I mean, I've got no love for Pacific Rim, but it's no Mimic. Um, and that was a film that was kind of born of studio interference and, uh, you know, a kind of a bright, young, vivid talent uh, from across the pond coming over to do something and not being able to uh, do it the way he wanted. Yeah, or something like and uh, one from a few years ago, which I'd completely forgotten this film existed until I was researching earlier, is Green Hornet. Oh, God, yeah, Michelle Gondry. Yeah, Michelle Gondry did a big budget superhero movie uh, and everyone's forgotten that it happened. And that Mm. is definitely one where you can see the compromise to it because there are little hints of his kind of visual inventiveness, but for the most part, it definitely feels as if he wants to do one thing Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, who wrote the script, wanted to do another thing. The studio wanted it to be like a family-friendly uh, comic book movie, and they, I think, originally had it to be a lot more edgy, and then that all gets kind of taken out of it. And it just feels like everyone involved is misfiring. Everyone involved is trying to do the thing that they are known for and being stopped. Mm. And it just ends up not working at all, and it's fascinating for the film that could have been and i do enjoy christoph waltz as the villain here he's as a very insecure megalomaniac but um yeah that's that's just one of those ones where you think i think everyone involved is probably happy not to have that on their um on their kind of like oscar death reel you know when they show clips of their movies they'll be happy if, if that one's left off yeah yeah i not only had i forgotten that happened like i'm i'm trying to rack my brains for stuff from that film that happened no like <laughs> kind of he's kind of like a millionaire kind of layabout isn't he he is Seth yeah. rogan's character he's kind of like a rich version of his character from knocked up yeah or kind of like a version of every character seth rogan's ever played pretty much yeah hmm. i can see what they've done there they really do push themselves don't they <laughs> rogan and goldberg fair play to him is also if, in terms of like versions of a film that you wished kind of existed like mm-hmm. originally there was talk that his sidekick and that was going to be played by stephen chow fresh mm. off of the success of kung fu hustle and also that he wanted to direct it and that film probably also would have been a disaster just because of the <laughs> studio interference but like if you think who would I really like to see be given a hundred million dollar budget and like free reign to do kind of a big budget action comedy adventure thing? Stephen Chow would be pretty high up on the list of people I'd like to see have a go at it, even mm. if it didn't work. Michelle Gondry, less so. Yeah, yeah, not so much. In terms of like people who got their start in exploitation or they, they did a, a kind of early genre film, one that popped out into my mind when I was thinking of great directors, Michael Mann. Uh, he kind of started off, or very early in his career, he had uh, The Keep, which is mm. by no means dreadful. It's just completely out of step with everything else he would do. It's kind of like a supernatural kind of thriller. Um, and that's kind of largely unconcerned with Michael Mann's kind of preoccupations going forward. Yeah, and I think, isn't there, there, there was some studio interference there as well in the... Oh, most likely, yeah. 
I think he wanted Tangerine Dream to do the score because they'd just done the score for Thief, maybe. Yeah. Or yeah, or, or he was someone who was like really interested in using their music, and they were like, "No, you can't have this on like a fantasy movie." And then yeah, the whole thing was just a, like a really misbegotten thing that didn't end up working, mm-hmm. uh, which is a shame. A good example, I think, of someone who was you know one of the great directors who started out in low budget exploitation stuff and it didn't really work out was Stanley Kubrick mm-hmm. because before he directed like obviously he directed like The Killing which was like huge and, and like uh, sent him off onto greatness and stardom he directed a movie called Killer's Kiss mm. which is a low budget noir it's incredibly generic there's not a huge amount distinctive about it but it does have one of the most laughable sequences I've ever seen, which is a final fight between the hero and the villain, which takes place in a mannequin factory and involves them in this kind of very badly choreographed fight, throwing each other into piles of mannequins and picking up the mannequins and smacking each other with it. Uh, And it's ludicrous. It's really, really bad. And I think, I can't remember who said this, but someone like who watched it, I think it was like a film student who reviewed it and said it was encouragingly bad. <laughs> because you're kind of thinking, because the guy who went on to direct some of the greatest movies of all time started off with this incredibly shitty, bad, uh, generic film noir. You know, it's got to give anyone who's kind of laboring on a film that doesn't work hope that they'll eventually achieve some greatness as well. Mm. Killer's Kiss is a very interesting film to put alongside the killing mm. a a killer's kiss is the as if someone had just shown someone like noir ingredients and said make one of these yeah whereas the killing kind of almost was the film that killed noir <laughs> like you can look at those films and you're like okay you know that oh he's done it now we don't have to keep making these do you know what i mean yeah yeah uh, exactly. it's, it kind of takes all of those those elements from all noir films and and kind of the tropes of the plots and everything and and just kind of distills it into this kind of one perfect essence of film noir. And it literally has every touchstone of it there, but just done better than everyone else could do it, which is, and, yeah, yeah, you know. And then two years earlier, the same guy made one. It's like the most kind of cack handed barely competent take on very similar material. Uh, it's It's mad. It's crazy to think that the same guy was responsible for... Two, two works in the same genre, so close together, but so diametrically opposed in actual quality. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, another reason I've come up with is for for a great director might uh, make her the odd duffer is being pushed outside their comfort zone. Mm. Um, and one of the examples I can think of is uh, the great Sam Raimi. Uh, I guess well, he's not that great, but you know, he's a good filmmaker. Um, often known as you know somebody who makes kind of hyperkinetic splatter fests um kind of like you know shot through with incredible humor and zest um made the soppy bullshit sports dramedy for the love of the game mm. which uh was i don't know why he was picked to do that um and then we, i think in the same year or very very close to that Wes craven who you know hasn't got a completely unblemished cb made the uh film is it music from the heart yeah, that's with right. with uh, Meryl Streep, which got her Oscar nomination that year, just because she was in it. Um, but I mean, both of those films are just you know, kind of baffling choices of uh, kind of matches of material and director. Yeah, and I think it's in some cases you can see that that is because someone has reached a point in their career where they've got enough successful films under their belt 
that studios start offering them things. Mm. Like in the case of Wes Craven, he was like just off of Scream, which was probably the biggest film of his career. Uh, and Sam Raimi, he was just off of um, A Simple Plan, I think, would have come out mm. maybe yeah. a year or two before then, uh, which was like hugely acclaimed and, and a kind of a fairly successful movie. And I think he, by that time, they, they, they had both established reputations as, as people who could get the job done. Whereas if you look at something like, uh, in, in a lot of cases, what you'll see is like directors who deliberately take a, a, a thing because they want to push themselves. Like they're in a position where they think, I have enough kind of commercial success or critical success behind me that I can try something that is really weird and maybe people aren't expecting. So you see something like Scorsese doing New York, New York. Mm -hmm. which is not the worst film that he directed. I think that still probably would go to like Boxcar Birth or something, something early in his career that, you know, was kind of just not especially good and that he didn't really have his heart in, but he needed to do because he needed to eat. Mm -hmm. um, but like New York, New York is like, okay, I'm going to make a musical because I love Vincent, Mane Vin Vincent Mane Manelli musicals, but it's going to be like gritty and it's going to be Robert De Niro beating Liza Minnelli up and it's going to be like just really tough and it doesn't really work but mm. you can see the reason it doesn't work is not because he's not trying and it's not because he's doing bad work it's literally just that he is trying something very different and strange and the end result just doesn't really kind of gel although that's a you know that's a, I think that's a controversial choice I think there are people who really like New York New York and they'd probably pick something else as like his worst movie but um that that I think is one where he is deliberately going outside of his comfort zone and it's not quite coming together. Mm. It's weird to think that, you know, you say that they want to do something weird uh, after, you know, establishing themselves as directors who can get the job done, that John Carpenter and Sam Raimi both spent their entire careers saying, oh, I wish I have to make any of this horror anymore. I just really want to make <laughs> a really middling kind of drama that's really fucking dull. Uh, I've always found it weird that, like, uh, I mean, he's not a great director and I think he's currently in prison. Uh, but John McTiernan, uh, the oh, guy yeah. who directed like Predator and Rollerball and stuff like that, um, Die Hard, and, uh, Die Hard, yeah. Um, why Rollerball? And uh, do you do the Rollerball remake? Fuck, I think so. Yeah, I... the one from like two thousand. Yeah, why did I pick that film as his second one over Die Hard? <laughs> um, oh, fucking who knows? But like, I remember seeing an interview with him, and he was just like, "Man, I, I got my start on Broadway and doing like off Broadway stuff, just doing kind of like." you know, uh, Eugene O'Neill plays and stuff. And just like, fuck, now I'm doing Predator <laughs> with some dicks in the jungle. You know, what's all that about? And thinking Boring. that like maybe all his entire life he just wanted to go back and do something intimate. But then the opposite of that is John Carpenter wanting to, uh, sorry, Wes Craven wanting to make uh, music from the heart. Or uh, someone like Stuart Gordon who starts out with like, what, Steppenwolf Theatre or something? Or like <laughs> stages like Mammoth Plays. And then like when he moves into a movie, it's like, Reanimator! <laughs> and like, <laughs> a thousand hp lovecraft animation uh, uh, adaptations and robot jocks and it's like it's such a weird direction his career may went in but he also seems to really enjoy the the way that his career's gone he seems super into that stuff which is why he keeps making kind of gruesome horror movies but yeah that's mm. that was one when i discovered that about him i was like i need to reconsider everything i think about stuart <laughs> gordon's work because it's yeah. such, it's such a weird digression for his career to have gone on Enough of this mammoth bullshit. I don't want an American buffalo. I want a head in a basket that can talk. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we've all been there. Um, I mentioned him briefly there with a Freudian slip of 
confusing Wes Craven and John Carpenter. Um, but that's another reason why someone might make uh, a duffer, which is uh, you know just decline, just general decline, or that mm. they've faded out and perhaps they just aren't quite as interested anymore. And John Carpenter is the example that springs to the front of my mind because of the film Ghosts of Mars, which uh, by anyone, it, you know, if that was on anyone's CV, they'd be ashamed of it. It's, you know, ostensibly a remake of Assault on Precinct 13, but with Jason Statham and Ice Cube on Mars. And it is so indicative of a filmmaker who does not want to be there uh, that doesn't want to be involved, that he's just doing it. And it is actually worse than Escape from L.A., which, you know, at least they say, you know, John, we've got one of your most famous characters. Here's some money. Go and make it. I can kind of see that. But Ghost to Mars is a film which led him into nine years of retirement, almost a decade out of the game, as it were. And, you know, in, in the time that he's had off, in, in that time he had off, he's, you know, kind of openly said he'd rather not be making films. He's not interested. Um, and the films he's made since then have backed that up. Yeah, I mean, the best that you can say about Ghosts of Mars is it made vampires look a lot better by comparison. <laughs> yeah, I've forgotten about that, uh, mainly because it stars James Woods, and I'm trying to forget everything he's ever done. James Woods and one of the Baldwins, Stephen? Mm. I'm sure John Bon Jovi's in the sequel. It's very possible. Uh, I remember stumbling across vampires like really late at night on film four once, and having quite a good time of it because I was quite drunk. Um, mm. It was like, it's not a good movie but it's very very weird like the priest that james wood is kind of palling around with he every time they have a fight he like turns to him he says how's your pecker and it's just like <laughs> i don't i don't see who i don't see why john carpenter thought that detail needed to be in there and he's constantly talking about his dick mm. uh, uh and it's just really weird there's a lot of kind of weird character choices in that film that i found to be incredibly amusing mainly because they distracted from the really boring villain who i want to say is played by stephen dorf by maybe confusing it with blade it's mm. like it's it's some like really generic vampire thing yeah um but ghost of mars is just like a complete misfire that doesn't really do much of anything uh and seems to only exist so that you can cash in on the brief obsession with mars that also gave us red planet back in the oh, early yeah. 2000s uh, is that the one that which one did De Palma direct? He directed Mission Mars. to Mars. Mission to Mars, yeah. Which, like, is ter- which is terrible and still not Brian De Palma's worst film. Yeah, I mean, that won't be what? Bonfire of the Vanities? Yeah, that is. that is Given the ingredients um, of that particular cinematic stew, that tastes like shit. Gave us a great book, though. Well, yeah, the spin-off novel, the tie-in <laughs> novel. <laughs> the novelisation of the film Bonfire of the Vanities uh, was pretty decent. Although I think Mr. De Palma can think of a better pen name than Thomas Wolfe. I was thinking about The Devil's Candy. The, oh, okay. Uh, the, the making of book, which is such a beautiful distillation of everything that can go wrong with a movie uh, and just makes everyone involved sound awful. Uh, the only person who comes out of it well is Dakota Johnson, who was like a three-month-old baby at that point and is briefly mentioned. Does Hanks even not come out of it well? Oh, you yeah, know, Hanks turns out okay. Yeah, Hank's yeah. okay. De Palma turns. De Palma comes off as a real shit. Uh, mm. Less so because of his work than because of uh, his relationship with. Uh, it was an actress. I'll have to look up her name, but she played one of Sabrina's aunts on Sabrina the Teenage Witch, who he was going out with at the time, and who uh, he just, based on the reporting in the book, apparently treated abhorrently. Oh right. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, well, that, I mean, De, De Palma has got you know quite a few 
bodies buried in his garden. Uh, in terms of films, I'm not talking actual bodies. Uh, I mean, he made a whole bunch of films like in the last 10 years that no one gives a shit about that no one heard about. Black Dahlia. That's a pretty bad one. I quite like his? Yeah, he directed Black Dahlia, yeah. Um, wow, okay. Which everyone was excited about because it's like, oh, it's an adaptation of a James Elroy novel and it's De Palma and it came out and it was just a complete dud. Beth Broderick is the name of the actress I was thinking of. Beth Broderick. Um, but yeah, Redacted was all right. Uh, in terms of his recent movies, he did like that war movie that was like one of the few Iraq war movies that came out during the Bush administration. But mm. that was more because he was trying, again, he was, he was trying something interesting, which was like, he was doing like a found footage war movie, which before everyone was doing found footage, everything uh, mm. was at least interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got a little subcategory on this, which is, uh, might cause some debate. Uh, one reason that a great filmmaker might stumble is that they have become an inescapable brand. Mm. Uh, and the one that immediately springs to mind is Tim Burton. Yep. Um, he was someone mine. who, uh, made quite a few good films early on and, you know, a couple of fucking masterpieces, if we're honest. Um, and since, uh, I don't know when it would be, what, like the mid, 90s? I can't put my finger on the exact film. Maybe Mars Attacks, possibly? I think Mars Attacks is pretty fun. It's not yeah, I mean, good, that's, no, that's good. I'm trying to think of his last good one. Oh, his last good one. Uh, people like Sleepy Hollow. I don't. But a lot mm. of people really like that movie. That was certainly yeah, the mean, last I... time I think everyone was really on side. And when was that, like 99, 2000? 99, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a long time ago and he has just been... Cranking them out. I mean, the worst that the worst that I can think of. I mean, I've certainly not seen them all, but the worst I can think of is the, is the Planet of the Apes. Uh, the first attempt at rebooting that as a franchise. That's awful mm. and yeah. so like lunk-headed and stupid and like you know coming out of the, the cinema after seeing that and just wanting to punch the nearest person <laughs> was you know all Tim Burton's fault and and. I think the reason that like he has kind of declined into this kind of filmmaker is that his style is so stagnant and his outlook is just so stale and not what it was that it's just boring, but he can't really seem to do anything else, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing, the worst thing that could be said about Tim Burton over the last decade or so, more than a decade, God, uh, is that every time a trailer for one of his films comes out, it looks exactly how you would have imagined the film would look. Mm -hmm. Like if you've seen a Tim Burton film before and they say, do you always oh, directing Alice in Wonderland? The first, whatever your first thought about what that movie is going to look like is what the film ends up looking like. Mm. He's so predictable. And even if it wasn't just stylistically, I just feel as if his heart isn't really in it anymore. Like he doesn't seem to make movies that really, resonate with him i mean the last movie of his that he made that i really liked was frank and weenie which was him remaking an old movie of his uh and so that was so coming from a time in his year when in his life when he was kind of connecting to the material in a very kind of visceral way uh and everything since then it is very much kind of like oh you're like a commercially successful director here's a book that people like please turn this into a movie and everything there's been little in the last time like 17 years that's actually really been good it's like corpse ride was was interesting i i quite like his version of sweeney todd even though there is the caveat that no one in it is a particularly strong singer mm -hmm. uh and that's it i think it's frank and weenie so you got like three films and then i mean 
Big Fish has its moments. Like there's, but there's a lot of there's a lot of shit in that time. Mm, yeah, sure. There's someone had like Dark Shadows, which is yeah, you know, literally like someone rang and said, "Is Tim Burton available?" And they were like, "No, we've got all his like kind of recurring cast there." And they're like, "Fine, we should <laughs> do it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no one will notice." We've just got um, an AD who can do it. Yeah, the other person I can think of who is uh, inescapable brand, but is definitely not a great filmmaker, but perhaps had the potential to do something. Uh, was M. Night Shyamalan. That was also who, on my list. There we go. Um, <laughs> someone who, you know, it, it, let's not forget, he had made a couple of like, family films before he made The Sixth Sense that no one remembers. Yeah. Um, but that's fine. We'll just ignore those anyway. He made The Sixth Sense. Everyone's like, oh, God, that's like kind of cool. It's kind of got a twist in it. And that's cool. And then he made Unbreakable, which is like, well, the twist wasn't quite as good. But like that film is he's so rich with atmosphere and kind of style. That's pretty good. Then he made The Village and everyone was like, oh, he's, there's a twist in there. I don't think he needed one. Uh, and then they were like, oh, here's the happening. Oh, there's a twist. There's Lady in the Water. I hate film critics. Oh my God, I want to kill myself. <laughs> and he also did Signs, which I think... Oh, there's a, a twist in that as well, wasn't there? There's a twist in that one, yeah. Like, he did three films in a row, which are... Sixth Sense, I think, is, is solid all the way through. And the mm-hmm. twist is genuinely good and does enrich the the the, the work. Unbreakable is really good, but the twist is unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Like it is, it is also one of those. I hate films that have a twist in like the last five minutes. Yeah, because it doesn't give you time. It doesn't give the audience time to really process it, and it also doesn't uh, have opportunity for the film to really kind of like turn on a dime. Like the twist in something like Psycho, which happens halfway through. Mm-hmm. That's like that's great. That actually reshapes the film and it forces you to recontextualize it and the audience has to sit with it and understand what's going on and like the one in in unbreakable is just kind of like haha this guy was the villain all along it's like oh that's not that interesting (laughs) you could have just given me the superhero story and it would have been fine exception Uh, to the rule exception to the rule is uh usual suspects in which that's a good one yeah you don't realize the wall has been pulled thoroughly over your eyes until the credits start and you're like what's yeah, although I do feel like those kind of twists limit the rewatchability. Mm, like, yep. you, you watch Usual Suspect for the first time and it's a surprise. You watch the second time to kind of see how the pieces fit together and then you never need to watch that movie again. Mm, I watch that film like every year, so you can, <laughs> sh- you can shut up. Okay. Um, but, like, Signs is also one that is, like, it's, it's, it's really good. The twist is dumb. The twist doesn't really help. <laughs> the twist doesn't really help it, but everything else around it is so strong. The uh, twist and- is uh, that uh, something to do with the water being left around by his daughter who's drinking it, but then also his dead wife told him to swing for the fences and then swing away. Had a, swing away, that's right. Yeah. Um, and somehow we've discovered that the aliens who are allergic to water, who invaded a planet which was 80% water, um, could suddenly be defeated by water. Well, my explanation for that is Napoleon invaded Russia in the middle <laughs> of winter, you know. Some people just make dumb mistakes. <laughs> they don't really think it through. Uh, but yeah, it's not it's not a great one as far as twists go. It's like it's a very sub Twilight Zone kind of twist. And like the, the or the fact that all of his films ended up having to be twisty. Uh, I mean, that's why when you get like the robot chicken parody of him, where it's just like a normal scene, and then something crazy happens, and then he goes and goes, oh, "What a twist!" <laughs> you know, that's that's just that's he became a literal kind of like cartoon at that point. And yeah, that that it gave him a brand name. Everyone knows who M Night Shyamalan is, but that eventually turned against him to the because now like 
I've had this happen multiple times where I go to see a film and then there's a trailer beforehand and everyone involved in the cinema is like into the trailer and then as soon as M. Night from M. Night Shyamalan comes up on the screen, people will go, oh, like it's like no now we can't watch that because it's going to be bad uh mm. you know so he is he has like 100 percent name recognition for exactly the wrong reason mm. he, he's his new film is supposed to be pretty good i've heard that you know the film with james mcavoy in yeah that uh, one has I, one of the, the, the strangest trailers i've seen in a while his he seems to be committing to that performance in a big way oh okay i've not seen it. i just heard that it was going down pretty well at like certain festivals I think, like, Shyamalan, if he wants to ever turn it around, he needs to, like, pull a Kendrick and just drop a film at midnight without telling anyone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Anna Kendrick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the Pitch Perfect 3 soundtrack comes out now, before the film, uh, just to kind of throw, throw people off the scent. <laughs> like, I mean, these aren't great directors by any stretch, but this kind of brings a problem up that the directors have in that I'm going to say, like, the Farrelly brothers made mm. Dumb and Dumber and Something About Mary, which are, like, two pretty goddamn amazing comedies. It's easy to kind of gloss over how good those two films are. But it, And Kingpin as well. They did that. There are three films they did that are really good. And um, then they've spent their entire careers trying to recapture that magic uh, badly. Yeah, because, what, Shallow Hal, The Three Stooges. Me, me Myself, and Irene. Yeah, that's not a Dumb good one. Dumb and Dumber 2. But two spelled T O, which is the funniest joke in the entire film. Yeah, stuck on you, which yeah. is like, it's probably the best of that bunch, maybe because it's got an mm. interesting premise. And I think the the problem with them in particular is like their early films. There's no sweetness to them. Like Dumb and Dumber is just joke, 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 joke. And there's a the kind the relationship between uh, Harry and Lloyd is is sort of endearing, but there's not a lot of heart or earnestness to it. And at a certain point, they decided their movies needed to have heart, mm. and that doesn't chime well with like the fact that their their best work is like pure misanthropy, mm. uh, and they've never been able to do kind of like the touchy feely, crude jokes and a bit of heart that you see like the Apatow stable doing. Like, not only are they are they trying to like recapture their youth, they're also sort of chasing trends a little bit, uh, mm. and, and that. It, those two are so diametrically opposed that it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've talked a lot about um, the reasons why, um, but now we're going to get into a kind of an area where I can't explain why some people have made a bad film. In overindulgence, I guess, uh, or passion projects that have happened for a long time uh, or have been kind of bubbling away. A good example of a passion project I can think of is uh, Oliver Stone's Alexander. Mm, which he'd yeah. been trying to do for a long time, which is fucking awful. Yeah, that's a really bad one. I think also in part because any time that they have like uh, someone has a project that they they commit to for such a long time, chances are that the production of it is going to be uh, chronicled in some detail over that time, and you'll have knowledge if you follow these things, you'll have knowledge of all the various casts that could have been. Mm-hmm. So, like, when Gangs of New York came out, which isn't Scorsese's worst movie, but it's not a particularly good movie after the first 20 minutes or so. Mm. Like, it's got a great opening, and then Liam Neeson dies, and then it's not interesting anymore. Uh, like, when you hear about, oh, he wanted to make it in 1978 with The Clash, and you're like, that sounds bad. Mm. That sounds really bad. But it also <laughs> sounds like he was really he would have been really swinging for the fences with that one. Mm. Or, or more recently, like, the Danny Boyle... Steve Jobs movie, which I really like. I rewatched that recently, but 
like you can't watch it without having like god wouldn't the fincher version with christian bale have been better mm. <laughs> you know like this version of the movie that doesn't exist but does exist in my head because i know all of this de- these details you know i really would rather see that version than this version that's fine uh and yeah and like alexander is one of those ones he spent so long making it that there is there are probably like a hundred like better ones that just didn't happen mm. yeah yeah absolutely um what about um quentin tarantino um someone who has uh to my mind one bad film on his cv um and the only reason I can figure out for why that film is bad is overindulgence. But the weird thing is, is that like his films are kind of good because they're overindulgent. Mm. So why is De- why is Death Proof, which is you know the film I think's uh, uh, kind of really bad? Uh, why is Death Proof stand out? Is it just because it's just way too too kind of like on the nose? Because it's half of a joke. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. It's like is a joke between him and Robert Rodriguez. It's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could have a double bill movie and like release it and call it Grindhouse and have fake trailers and all this kind of accoutrements? And then he can't commit to it. Like mm. Planet Terror is not a good movie, but it's kind of fun and dumb. Mm. And Death Proof is like it doesn't. It commits to the kind of Grindhouse aesthetic in that it has a missing reel. Uh, which was then added for like the full feature version, in which case, what's the fucking point? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it has like a missing reel, but otherwise it's like a kind of half, it kind of half commits to the joke, but not fully. Like it's not a full Grindhouse movie and it's not a full, like good committed Tarantino movie. It exists in this kind of midpoint where he's kind of doing it as a lark and it doesn't it doesn't come together in an interesting way. Um, like, you know, a lot of people have problems with things like the hateful eight or Django Unchained or things like that. But you don't doubt his commitment to his bad choices <laughs> in those movies. You know, you can really get the sense that he's really trying for something, whereas Death Proof feels too tossed off to really work. Mm, yeah, yeah. It is kind of so trivial as an exercise. Um, it's hard not to kind of see through its uh, kind of paper-thin facade. Great soundtrack, uh, though. Yes, excellent soundtrack. I, I, it's the only Tarantino film I've not seen twice. But I hate play, obviously, because it's not out. But like, yeah, I've not, I've not seen, I, and I have no urge to revisit Death Proof again. I, I got like the big. They did a, a big box set of his films on Blu-ray a few years ago, so I do own it. And every mm. so often, I feel like maybe I should give it another chance. But then I remember like sitting through it the first time. It's like no, maybe I'll just watch <laughs> Pulp Fiction again. Mm, yeah, yeah, there is always that. Um, uh, Spielberg's an interesting case because uh, mm. I said uh, I said to you before we went on that I didn't want this this uh, episode to be just us listing filmmakers and saying oh, was their bad film. Um, but Spielberg is someone that I couldn't quite fit into any of those categories um, because his kind of early films were pretty good. Um, he hasn't kind of um, he still keeps surprising us with 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 stuff. Um, but what's his worst film? Because he has got quite a few bad films on on his cv but what's the worst there's three in my mind that are kind of in jockeying for position Mm -hmm. i'll go Go from go for them in uh, in chronological order 1941 Mm -hmm. is that bad or does it just not work very well uh i think it's legitimately bad but also yeah it doesn't work very well it's a blockbuster comedy Mm -hmm. which is something that almost never works like (laughs) yeah like Comedies can become blockbusters, like The Hangover, but 
they start off as films that aren't hugely expensive and then just happen to do really well. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you set out and it's like, we're going to give this, we're going to make this comedy with all this money and it's going to be big and have a huge cast and it's going to be crazy. It almost never works. Like mm, you get Ishtar. Yeah, Ishtar, um, which isn't that bad. Like Ishtar. Yeah, Towners. Yeah, that's not good. Um, like it's very rare. I mean, there's parts of it's a mad, 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 mad world that are really funny, mm-hmm. but they're also it's also indigestible as an experience. Like it's the sort of thing that you can watch an hour of at a time, and then you'll do something else mm-hmm. because it's so that's it's so much movie. Um, but yeah, like 1941 is just a complete mess. Uh, always is mm. him at his sappy worst. Yeah, uh, that is bad. It's bad. It's him remaking like one of the most important films of his uh, to him and I feel like he gets overwhelmed a little bit by it and it becomes super duper sappy as a result. Uh and then third, Hook. Oh shit, is... I hadn't even considered Hook. I didn't expect you to say Hook cuz I had something different on my list. Oh, okay. What was you on your list? Crystal Skull. Oh yeah, I'd forgotten Crystal Skull. Like, there's, there are some that are just so bad you just kind of put out your mind. Uh, mm. I would say Hook is worse than Crystal Skull because Crystal Skull, I think you can pick apart why it's bad in more detail. Hook is just like such a misbegotten thing from the beginning. It's not even interesting to pick about what pick apart why it's bad. Mm. It's just like the entire concept. It's like, oh, it's a grown-up Peter Pan. Oh, so it's like not got much magic to it. Yeah. No, <laughs> I don't want to watch that. Even as a five-year-old, I saw that, and I was like, no, this is horrible. Yeah. I think I've told the story about me seeing Hook before on the podcast, but like, I was in some kind of caravanning holiday like in like North Wales or something, and mm. I just remember there being so much rain. It was like the heavy, heavy, heavy rain that kind of just drums the kind of madness into you if you're inside a caravan. And I remember just my dad just said, fuck this noise, we are going out somewhere, we're going to go to a local town, we'll do something. And then obviously it was just miserable all the time. And we got out there and the only thing to do that was kind of dry was in the cinema to see Hook and we sat down to watch it and I just couldn't stop thinking, I'd rather be in the fucking caravan because <laughs> <laughs> this is just joyless. Uh, you know, this is this is something that just, you know doesn't work. I mean, I like the big crocodile clock mm. um, and it fell on Dustin Hoffman, but that was it. Yeah, I mean, in terms of watching bad films because of the weather, mm. the ultimate example for that for me would be the first Scooby-Doo movie, the live-action Scooby-Doo, which I watched because my family were on holiday and we were in Boston, mm. and it was the middle of summer, and it was the hottest summer I'd ever experienced in my life up to that point. It was painful to be in the sun for more than five minutes at a time. So we spent much of that holiday hopping in and out of movie theatres and that was the one that we went to see in Boston. It's like, what's starting? K-19, The Widowmaker, or Scooby-Doo? It's like, mm. I mean, it's the Sophie's choice of not particularly inspiring movies. Uh, and we went for Scooby-Doo, which was, was dreadful. Uh, really, really bad. Uh, K-19, actually, not that bad in comparison. I think that probably would have been better. But unfortunately, my parents listened to me and my sister, and we went to watch Scooby-Doo. Also on that holiday, watched Men in Black 2 for the same reason. And that was... A dispiriting experience. Mm, it's pretty bad. Men in Black Three, though, that's good. That's what yeah. I'm saying it. Sonnenfeld pulled it back for that one after mm. really just kind of whiffing on the second movie. I'm just going to finish this podcast now, which has gone long, but I don't care because I've had a nice time uh, talking to you. Yeah. Um. Uh. For a change. Um. <laughs> it's all going to go. Who's afraid of a Virginia Wolf now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just bitterness. Five yeah. years. Five years of my life. Mm, yeah. 
Oh, Edward Albee died recently, didn't he? I mean, oh, yeah, that's sure, completely yeah. beside the point, but yeah, <laughs> fuck that. Anyway, what am I saying? Is there any filmmakers who have impeccable CVs? I actually had Kubrick written down. I forgot any Killer's Kiss, uh, which is real weird because I've written academically about that film that I've forgotten <laughs> that existed. Um, but there are people out there that uh, do have kind of very good CVs. Someone like Wes Anderson uh, jumps forward, but then his uh, CV is very short uh, in comparison. Yeah. Uh, someone like Paul Thomas Anderson... I know you're not particularly warm on uh, Hard Eight, but he is also. No, I like I like Hard Eight now. I was yeah, I was lukewarm on it for a while because I watched it years ago, and for some reason I had completely misremembered the plot and thought that the plot hinged on like a really bad twist, which mm. it actually, when I rewatched it, it completely doesn't. So that's that's signs you're thinking of. Yeah, oh yeah, I was thinking uh. of M Night Shyamalan's Hard Eight, <laughs> which I would not watch. Yeah, um, but P W S Anderson, he's got. Just a, no bad films on his CV. That his his CV is just one giant blemish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, but I, I mean, has anyone got a flawless CV that goes over a long time? That goes over, let's just say, you know, like in baseball, where it says like uh, they'll have a stat and then it will say like minimum 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 qualification, like twenty five plate appearances or something like that. Yeah. I, mean, I, want, I want a, a minimum qualification of eight films. I think there's some that come really close. I think um, uh, Pedro Almodovar came really close, but then he did I'm So Excited, mm, which was like a bad, 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 bad film. But uh, Hitchcock was, you know, he had like several runs of really great films, but then he dropped like a topaz. Mm. Uh, you know, he'd have one that would just kind of ruin it. Um, Kurosawa, I think, comes very, very close. Like... There's things like his version of The Idiot, which is not very good, but also were like, I think, really cut down from their original version or like he had he had one idea for it and then other people took it away. So I think Kurosawa is probably the one who's got the most like really, really great films in a row. And then he'll have something like The Silent Jewel, which is just like melodramatic and unenjoyable. But mm. yeah, there's not there's not really that many i think the the closest you get is someone like the coen brothers where their bad films which would be things like intolerable cruelty uh, and the lady killers will have like some stuff in to recommend them but mm. they're still not very good they're, they're lucky in that their worst films are things like gambit which they just wrote mm. uh, so they could kind of blame that on whoever directed gambit always leaping to my mind is one of my favorite filmmakers john sales who mm. has not got a flawless CV by any stretch of the imagination, but um, his worst films are just, eh. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're, not, they're not bad, bad. Um, they're not terrible. I mean, Honey Dripper's kind of close um, to being, you know, a dodgy episode of Quantum Leap. Um, <laughs> but, um, the, you know, the, his films that aren't particularly good, you know, your Silver Cities and your Sunshine States, they're just kind of like, oh, he's just, he just banged that out you know that's just he just made that film and you know it's okay <laughs> it's not it's not terrible but it's not particularly good either which is i mean there's a lot of filmmakers like that who's who's with the expression you know the bad films are all are pretty good type of thing and terry gilliam falls into that category yeah um but yeah john sales is someone who just who kind of especially some of his more recent films have been just a little bit by the numbers and it's not because I don't think he doesn't care anymore. I think it's just because he doesn't really have a great deal to work with at the minute. You know, you know, kind of funding films himself is is I don't really think the way. 
Yeah, like writing unproduced versions of Jurassic Park sequels doesn't really pay the bills, does it? Um, like Jim Jarmusch comes very close, but then he's got limits of control, which yeah. is like such a terrible movie. And like such a, it kind of goes into that established brand thing because it's like, it so feels like one of his movies. It has everything. It has the studied cool. It has a really cool soundtrack, but it just misfires like terribly. Like it's got a really like Isaac Bankole is such a uncharismatic lead in that instance. He's good in other films, but he's like, he's really uncharismatic in that. The idea of him doing like an international spy assassin movie is just doesn't fit with his, his style. And like, it's 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 really a shame because then you have what the film before then is like Broken Flowers, which was him kind of breaking out a little bit and trying something that wasn't as kind of arch and artificial and something a little more emotional. Mm. Uh, and then he goes completely the other way and makes a movie that's devoid of all emotion. Mm. I saw, um, I was at the cinema today and I saw um, a trailer for his new film, Patterson. Mm. And uh, as soon as the trailer finished... Uh, at least four people in my vicinity and probably a lot more people in the cinema that I couldn't hear just went, what the fuck was that about? Because <laughs> that trailer is just like, Adam Driver's on a bus, he's a poet, some things happen. And not really a clear idea of what's going on in that film. I don't know whether that film's a hard sell for the marketing department, mm. but they haven't particularly done the job if you don't know who Jim Dar- Jarmusch is. Yeah. Um, uh, we, touched, we touched on it earlier, but uh, Scorsese, what's his uh, worst film? And I, I do like the joke in The Sopranos where Scorsese <laughs> walks past Christopher Moltisanti and he's like, Marty, come done, I loved it. <laughs> Which is, you know, one of my favorite favorite lines from that show. Um, but I've never actually seen Cundon. Like, you know, is it is it actually bad or is it just like... Uh, like we talked about earlier with um, Sam Raimi and Wes Craven, is it just moving significantly outside of your comfort zone? Uh, it's, I, I quite like Kundan, but it is, it's so unlike anything else he made mm. uh, that you could see why people would react to it with just kind of blank stares. Um, it's just, it is just so strange to see him take on like the early life of the Dalai Lama or one of the Dalai Lamas, uh, uh, Dalai's Lama, I guess is the, the plural. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's not a bad film at all, but it is, it's so, it's so odd that I think that's why it was met with just indifference because mm. he's, he's coming off of like casino and he does this very calm and meditative film. So, so people were just like, what, why, why is this? Um, my least favorite, I think his worst is probably Boxcar Bertha, just because it's like a cheapo exploitation movie. Uh, but Hugo's my least favorite of his. I think Hugo's yeah. legitimately a bad movie with well intentioned, but like unwatchable. <laughs> mm, yeah, Hugo, and I mean, I, I, yeah, I really hate The Departed. Like, I think mm. I need to revisit it because my hatred for it has only grown having weirdly <laughs> just not seen it and just had everyone tell me how good it is. Um, but I yeah. kind of reacted to that in you know like morgan freeman opening the box in the end of seven and just kind of <laughs> recoiling in horror at, at what i was seeing but maybe i was just in a bad mood we've had this conversation before haven't we about uh perhaps doing a podcast where we revisit films that we've seen once and and didn't like and you know mm. my triumvirate of uh amelie uh eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and the departed perhaps need to be readdressed yeah i mean i can't think of, i don't know 
because I did actually do that for a while on my blog was like I did a thing called Second Chance Film Club in the early days of my blog where I'd watch movies that I I disliked after first watching and, and weirdly mine were um X-Men Last Stand which <laughs> get the big heavy hitters out of the yeah, way early yeah uh, and Citizen Kane <laughs> uh, <laughs> both of which I ended up liking a lot more on second viewing although X-Men Last Stand is really only enjoyable for like its weird camp value Mm. Uh, because it's not a good film at all and I think the fact that they included Vinnie Jones as the juggernaut saying I'm the juggernaut bitch <laughs> uh, in reference to a YouTube video uh, is pretty much everything bad about that movie kind of distilled into a single moment but also like it's so bad it is <laughs> it's weirdly enjoyable mm. um, and you can probably say, say the same thing about Citizen Kane yeah, it's like that bit has where a certain camp value. Yeah, when he's smashing up that room. Mm. Yeah, you just kind of shit there going like, fuck it up, Orson, go for it. Knock I'm over a, that table. I'm a mogul, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's a weird thing to say about Susan Kane. But anyway, let's 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 use that point uh, to wrap up our conversation about uh, bad films uh, by uh, great directors. And let's talk about uh, something positive. Let's do some recommendations. Uh, what have you got this week, Ed? I'm going to recommend a documentary that uh, dropped, as they say, on Netflix a few weeks ago. It's by Ava DuVernay, who I mentioned very briefly at the start of this episode. It's called 13th. It's a documentary about the prison uh, industrial complex, I guess is the the term for it, in America, using uh, as its starting point the fact that the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which is the one that outlawed slavery, has a clause in it which says that slavery will be outlawed except in the case of prisoners. And it argues that prisons have been used as a f- extension of slavery or as a form of, re- ex- of repression against people of colour. Um, and it is a movie that I think anyone who kind of pays attention to, to crime statistics, prison statistics in the US will not necessarily be surprised by a lot of things that come up in it um like the growth of the prison population the fact that for-profit prisons mean that a lot of people get sent to prison because you need to fill it whether or not those people actually deserve it the like rise of three strike laws being like horrible and devastating because people can go to prison for 25 years for three minor crimes and things like that but having them all presented in a row having them all put into context of this long history of racism and racial repression on the part of you know the of the system uh, is very impactful and it also ties in things like the um the the civil rights movement to black lives matter and you know it retells stories of of black people being killed by police in ways which is very clear-eyed but also deeply emotional because it's really that stuff is you know it's horrible it's still really really hard uh, and it should still be very hard because if we get immune to that sort of stuff, that is a dangerous place for society. Um, and it's a hugely impactful documentary and it's really informative. It's really emotional. And uh, there is a segment from it that has been excerpted and has done the rounds, been viral on Twitter, where segments of one of Donald Trump's stump speeches where he talks about in the good old days is juxtaposed against footage of protesters in the 60s being like hosed down or being punched or being carted away on stretchers uh and uh 
that's very impactful. <laughs> that's an incredibly effective bit of emotional filmmaking uh, on Ava DuVernay's part. Uh, and it's the film in, in microcosm taking the struggles of, you know, African-Americans in America today and putting them into a kind of broader context. Uh, and it is a, um, it's, it's probably the best movie I've seen all year. Uh, and it's on Netflix everywhere and everyone should watch it. I have not seen it. I have had it endlessly recommended to me by uh, like a lot of people. Um, and I will kind of hope to catch it this week. Um, I have got terrible news for everyone who wants me to come up with something lighthearted to counterpoint, <laughs> to counterpoint that. Um, but I am I, going to recommend the new Ken Loach film, uh, mm. I, Daniel Blake, which I saw today. Um, and that film is fucking brutal it is a uh, kind of scathing um indictment of uh kind of the benefit system and uh, the welfare state uh, in britain um it is not flawless as a film it is uh, occasionally a little on the nose it is a little heavy-handed in places and um the commitment to using non-professional actors does make some scenes um slightly kind of sluggish um, but that film has one hell of an emotional impact and uh, made me feel deeply guilty uh, about watching it um, in a very middle-class white cinema and, you know, surrounded by kind of middle-class white people uh, and, you know, saying how terrible it all was and then leaving to continue my life. Um, so I can say that was a great film for making me feel that way. Um, and that you know it is very very powerful. It is uh, you know not an easy watch. Um, uh, the two leads kind of sell absolutely every scene they're in. Um, that you know it will destroy you uh, emotionally. There were a few people who came out of that uh, in quite a state, and it was very very kind of heartening to see the cinema that I was in pretty full. Um, I know it's the first week of release but you know it's a film that is doing pretty well I think and that people are kind of in, enjoying I think is the wrong word but kind of getting into um, and yeah I don't really know it's not going to make for a pleasant double bill with 13th <laughs> um, but it is you know a truly excellent film on the Palm Door last year it was the last year wasn't it yeah was it this year uh, I think it was this year this year yeah won the Palm Door this year um, and if it arrives anywhere near, you should go and see it. Uh, to add a bit of levity, I'll recommend very quickly. There's a movie that came out this year, a documentary called Women He's Undressed, which mm-hmm. is a documentary by the Australian filmmaker Gillian Armstrong about the life of Ori Kelly, who is, uh, sorry, Ori Kelly, who is a costume designer who directed the, who designed the costumes for things like Casablanca and some like it hot and. Uh, a bunch of betty davis movies like jezebel and uh he was an australian who moved to america like lived in new york at at the height of of, of vaudeville and then went to uh, hollywood and he was like in a sexual relationship with carrie grant and things like that and it's a very enjoyable movie and it's very it's great from a analysis point of view because you get all these great costume designers coming in to talk about why his work enhanced the movies they made but also there's some like dishy hollywood gossip stuff which is always very fun so that's mm. if people wanted something to kind of sandwich in between the kind of the misery of 13th and I, Daniel Blake, women he's undressed is is very fun. And it's on Netflix I've, currently. 
Okay, well, I'm going to recommend another film. I'm going to recommend <laughs> Capturing the Freedmans. Just to, say the, <laughs> just to bring the edge off. No, I'm not. I'm not going to do that again. I can only recommend Heroin to uh, take the pain away from real life, which is awful. <laughs> um, by the sounds of it. Um, anyway, that is your lot, everybody, on the subject of bad films from great directors. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. And if you really enjoyed the show, leave us a little review. Why not? You can find us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast and on Facebook as well. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs>